The book of Revelation is probably the most exciting and at the same time the most misunderstood book in all scripture. The Come Follow Me study for 2023 is all about the New Testament, and the book of Revelation is the crowning book of the New Testament. I'm Sam Bracken, your host, and our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who has studied the book of Revelation through the lens of the temple. God makes us certain promises if we enter into a covenant with him. In this podcast, we explore the promises the Lord makes to us in the temple. Breck, in the last podcast, we talked about the initiatory ordinances that appear in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. We discussed some of the promises that go along with these covenants, but we didn't get through them all. Right. There are seven promises, and we explored the first four of them in our last episode. And those four were eternal life, royal crown, a new royal name, and kingdoms to rule. Now, let's explore the three remaining promises that are in Revelations, uh, Revelation 2 and 3. The Lord gives the fifth promise to the saints at Sardis. Now, that's the next city in this the circular path of Jesus as he goes around the seven um, cities. Sardis is the next one. Quote, he says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. That's chapter 3, verse 5. Here the Lord promises to endow the faithful with a white robe, which was called in Greek a hemation. Now this particular kind of garment was a large cloth rectangle that was draped over one shoulder and worn by both sexes. A hemation, one shoulder. Um, although women often veiled themselves with it. Mm. Uh, this is the robe of the priesthood. Wow. Robed like this, the saints become worthy. Uh, the Greek word is axios. They become worthy to, quote, walk with me in white, says Jesus, um, to the place of judgment where the angels keep the book of life. Here, the names of the righteous are written, and the Savior presents them by name to his Father as they enter the celestial world. But the Sardis saints have become unfaithful to their garments, to their priesthood robes. Jesus says that most of the saints at Sardis have, quote, a name that thou livest and are dead. They're reputed to be good people, but they're actually dead inside. Many of them are smooth hypocrites. Wow. Like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward but are spiritually dead inside, says Jesus. Their, their discipleship is all for show. Now, we don't have to guess at the reason for this. Gold coins were first minted at Sardis. It was a famous, rich city. Uh, it was a major commercial center. Its legendary king was named Croesus, and Croesus was the richest of all men. Greed is the watchword of Sardis, and greed might explain the lack of integrity among the saints there. They were greedy people. Other than the, quote, few names which have not defiled their garments, says Jesus, most of the saints at Sardis were not likely 
to accept the covenant of consecration. To consecrate their lives and possessions to the cause of Christ, they were not likely to do that because of their greed and their worldliness. But the faithful saints will, quote, walk with the Lord in white, unquote, robed with the ordinances of the higher priesthood. As, quote, morning stars, they will shine forth as the sun. In the book of Enoch, uh, the prophet says, out of the love he bore Enoch, God arrayed him in a magnificent garment to which every kind of luminary in existence was attached, unquote. So the church members in Sardis were mostly apostates. They valued money more than they valued the membership in the church. Yes, Jesus says they, quote, defiled their garments, unquote, which, of course, symbolizes breaking the covenants. They lose the promises, too, obviously. Now, the Lord gives the sixth promise to the saints at Philadelphia, not the one in Pennsylvania, but right. Philadelphia in Asia Minor. Okay. Quote, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the, in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. That's verse 12, chapter 3. What kind of promise is that, to be made a pillar in the temple? What does that actually mean? The ancients saw the universe as a temple. The whole universe is a temple with pillars, walls, and gates. Mm -hmm. Now, in Mesopotamia, for example, temples featured sculpted figures in a circle holding up the sky. Mm -hmm. And uh, they spread their arms upright, which is very important. They're pillars. They spread their arms up. Okay. They're called the pillars of heaven and the attitude of prayer. So this is a very important symbol. I want you to see that in your mind's eye. Okay, I'm looking. A pillar of the temple holds his hands high in the attitude of prayer. Okay. Now I see you smiling. Yes, I get it. You get it. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's very important. It is. You become a pillar. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now you see it. Now, you've, you've heard faithful members of the church called pillars before. He's a pillar of the church, yeah. right? Pillar of the community. Pillar yeah. of the church. Yeah. Right. It was the same anciently people who are, quote, pillars in the temple. They consecrate everything to the mission of Christ. Now, although the Philadelphian saints had a reputation for being kind of weak, they had, quote, little strength, unquote, the Savior promised to make weak things become strong unto them, right? And to make them powerful pillars upholding the kingdom. Also, pillars were royal symbols. Mm. At the coronation of Pharaoh in Egypt, a new pillar was raised for, for, every, for a new Pharaoh. This pillar was called a Jed pillar. A Jed pillar uh, was a sculpture of the human backbone. Okay? Mm, okay. And it's a symbol of stability and duration, a symbol of strength. The human backbone mm -hmm. holds you up. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it represented a promise of physical health and strength. So, strength in the backbone, okay? Now, likewise, in the Temple of Solomon was a column called the King's Pillar, which is another symbol of kingship. To be a pillar in the Lord's house is to be what? A king. A king queen. or a queen. Yeah. Okay, you're getting it. Okay, getting there it, you yeah. go. Okay. Now, to the saints in Philadelphia, the Lord says this, and this is very important symbolism, quote, 
I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Close quote. He's making an invitation, right? To enter the door, enter the celestial kingdom or the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now, entering the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple meant passing through two big formidable golden doors behind a massive veil. Uh, once upon a time, only the high priest could enter that Holy of Holies, right. go through that. Right. But now the atonement opens the celestial kingdom to all faithful Adams and Eves mm. and everyone. Now, of course, the door is a polyvalent symbol, right? Mm-hmm. As we've said before, you know what that means. Yep. Um, the door is also Christ himself. As he says, quote, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Mm-hmm. Now, as the heir to King David's throne, Jesus Christ bears on his shoulder the key of David. This is a symbol from Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Jesus bears on his shoulder the key of David, and that symbolizes his sealing power. He can lock and unlock, mm-hmm. right? Bind and loose, right? That key is an extremely important symbol. As a matter of fact, in ancient times, a king would always have a right-hand man, a mm-hmm. servant, mm-hmm. who was a right-hand, uh, you know, his prime minister or his number one guy, mm-hmm. okay? And that person, in ancient times, would carry around his shoulder the keys to the palace, <laughs> okay. okay? He was okay. in charge of the doors and gates, now, who is in charge of the gate of the celestial kingdom? That'd be the Savior. That'd be the Savior. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's why he bears the key of oh, David. Very cool. David is the king, right? So he th- bears the key of David. And um, in chapter 3, verse 7, um, John says, He, that is the Christ, openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. In other words, it's his sealing power. Mm-hmm. Remember that the name David is a Hebrew word that means beloved? Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Beloved. So the key of David is also the key of the beloved. Oh, wow. <laughs> Only the beloved son may open the veil oh, or the door yeah. to his father's kingdom. Quote, Nephi says, quote, The keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and whoso knocketh to him Will he open? Close quote. So the door or the veil of the temple symbolizes Jesus Christ. When we go through the veil of the temple, we enter the kingdom of God through the atonement of Christ. That is very well put, Sam. (laughs) It's very well put. And that is a precious insight. Yes, it is. You can see how rich all this symbolism is. It's just amazing. It's amazing. In the book of Revelation. The Lord gives the seventh and final promise to the saints at Laodicea. That's the last Less, stop on last the stop on the circular the route. Okay, right. If he keeps going, he comes back to Ephesus. Okay, okay. so it's a circular highway, if you will. Okay, and at Laodicea, he gives the seventh promise. Quote: To him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. And I'm set down with my father in his throne. I can't imagine what it would be like to share the throne of Jesus Christ. 
No kidding. To share the throne of Christ is to share the power, quote, by, by which all things are governed. Wow. Even the power of God who sitteth upon his throne, who is in the bosom of eternity. End quote. Doctrine and Covenants 88.13. Here, Adam and Eve reach exaltation in the highest degree. Those who realize this promise have, through the atonement and their own faithfulness, overcome all things. They are real overcomers. Now, in Revelation 3.20, the next verse, the Lord says, quote, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, the supper spoken of here is the wedding feast. Mm. A non-LDS scholar, Jacques Chevalier, says this about the feast. Quote, The words to the last church of Asia Minor are an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, an event announced by a bridegroom knocking at the door of his beloved. Unquote. That's how Jewish marriages were done, the groom would come through the town with his friends and everything, making a lot of noise, and then they'd knock on the bride's door. Wow. And, and then they would take her to the wedding. Now, the saints in ancient times viewed this supper as, quote, the Lord being wedded to his bridal church at the end of time, unquote. So this seventh and highest promise connects to the sealing ordinance, you see? Mm-hmm. Quote, the crowning blessing of the temple, it is God's gift to his children, his greatest gift to his children. That's what the prophet says. In the, uh, the church has a, a website about the temple ceiling, and it says the crowning blessing of the temple is the ceiling ordinance. The ceiling creates an eternal family and a continuation of the seeds forever. Then shall they be gods, says the scripture, because they have no end. Now, unfortunately, here's the other side of the coin. The saints of Laodicea ignored these promises. They threw it all away. Wow. The riches of eternity left them lukewarm. They just didn't care about this because they were already well off. It was one of the richest cities in the world, uh, Laodicea. Um, enjoyed booming trade due to uh, busy banking and wooling industries and the manufacture of salves or ointments. It was a big, big business in this area. Quote, Jesus says, quote, Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Wow. Says Jesus to the saints of Laodicea. They're in trouble. That's pretty scary. As they increased with goods, it says here in chapter 3, verse 16, as they increased with goods, they decreased in faith, and provoked Jesus into giving them this warning, quote, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, unquote. So is there a pattern of these promises? Um, they seem to start with the tree of life, 
in the garden and end with the sealing of Adam and Eve. You have it. You see it. Yes. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we begin to see a pattern. Yeah. Man, this makes sense. Non-Latter-day Saint scholars suspect that this list of covenants follows some sequence, but they can only speculate on why there's a pattern there. Mm -hmm. By contrast, temple-going Latter-day Saints recognize this pattern. We should recognize that this prologue to the rest of Revelation consists of the initiatory promises. Yeah. Okay? Now, President Gordon B. Hinckley had this to say. He explained the initiatory ordinances this way. They provide, this is a quotation, they provide special blessings regarding divine heritage and potential, washings and anointings that we may be clean before the Lord, and the sacred temple garment. For the seven churches, he previews the instruction service in which we are given an endowment of obligations and blessings that motivate us to behavior compatible with the principles of the gospel. They include the sealing ordinance that binds on earth and in heaven, enabling the continuity of the family, close quote. That's a great paragraph that summarizes what we've just been talking about in the last two podcasts. So, yeah. According to President Hinckley, Revelation 2 and 3 gives us the ordinances of the temple in their proper sequence, okay? Mm-hmm. The initiatory ordinances prepare Adam and Eve for their journey through mortality. Meanwhile, in the Jewish legends, Satan tries to counterfeit those ordinances. And in apocalyptic literature, he gives Adam phony tokens, attempting to get him to reveal the signs he learned in Eden. Satan also offers him the fruit of a tree of life, He offers them a garment of light. He offers them a kingdom of eternal glory, none of which he can deliver, right? Mm -hmm. But he makes these phony promises. He shows up with two of his minions to imitate the three angels who bring them the tokens of the true covenant. But his method is deception. The first three chapters of Revelation help us discern these devilish pitfalls along the covenant path. The initiatories give us a new life, with a new name and identity. We are cleansed, anointed, clothed with the promise through our faith to become like our heavenly parents. Revelation 2 and 3 describes these ordinances, although the Christian world has nearly forgotten them. Yes, I was wondering, the ordinances are so clear in Revelation 2 and 3, why don't modern-day Christians know more about them? I think they lost the ordinances because they lost the true understanding of who God is and who we are. They couldn't accept the idea that we, as children of God, could become gods ourselves. It was contrary to all their traditions. They rejected the doctrine of theosis, which is the Greek word for becoming like God. And that's what the temple ordinances were all about. Right, that's sacrilege in many religions, yes. this notion of becoming like God. Right, they can't accept it, and they yeah. couldn't accept it, even then. Yeah. Uh, yet the doctrine of theosis was always somewhere in the background of the Christian religion. It sort of kept going in some ways. The historic Christian church is full of echoes of the ancient temple tradition. Even non-LDS scholars are beginning to see that. 
they're beginning to see a connection between ancient temple rituals and theosis. Uh, one scholar, Margaret Barker, says that connection is unmistakable, the connection between the temple and the gospel. One non-LDS scholar, another one, who is very alert, I think, says this, quote, The heavenly birth ritualized in the Holy of Holies by the anointing oil and the holy garments of glory and the water have all been obscured. And thus the temple ritual of theosis has almost disappeared from the scriptures, close quote. Now that's a non-LDS scholar wow. saying that. Now, happily, the ordinances of theosis, becoming like God, have been restored by the prophet Joseph Smith. And non-LDS scholars can hear that echo and they discern that pattern, but they don't know what became of it. Right, right, right. right. So let me summarize this. The initiatory ordinances point us across the gulf of mortality to an eternity of love. The overcomer, the conqueror, in Greek, the Nikon, quote, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son, quote, unquote. That's from chapter 21, verse 7. These first chapters of Revelation establish a family relationship between God and the believers who overcome. They will be God's own children. The next chapters of Revelation will show what it means to overcome. We talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. The initiatory ordinances are now over. Now we're ready to take the journey through the temple with the bright and morning star. Our Savior, the one who has overcome all things himself, he is our guide. Breck, this has is, this is, uh, had a profound impact on me today. Thank you so much for sharing this great wisdom and these insights. Thank you.